the good. The bad. And the remake. Spoilers in three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Remake podcast, where we watch some classic films, some not so great, and their respective remakes. Will it be an unmake, an agree make, or amazing? My name's Neil, and these are my co hosts. Hi, I'm Catherine. Hello, I'm Ben. Today, we have episode 26, Psycho. Uh, you'll hear our thoughts on the original, our expectations for the remake, that one thing we will take from the remake into the original, and a lot more. Here we are, first episode of season three, our 26th episode in total. And uh, we're covering off Psycho and its remake, of course. It's also Psycho. But there are two films, Ben. But I'm pretty sure there is only one synopsis for this one. Well, for reasons that will become very apparent when we talk about the remake, pretty easy writing the synopsis for this one. I'm not going to lie. Well, it is in the sense of comparing the two films. I don't want to give away too much. I know we're going to spoil the films, but I didn't want to spoil it all in the synopsis. So here goes. I am dusty, rusty, and all that stuff. So bear with me. <coughs> Marion Crane, an unmarried real estate secretary, seizes the opportunity to take a large cash deposit from a high-profile customer. And instead of delivering it to the bank, decides to take the money and run in the hope of using it to start again with her lover. She into the empty Bates Motel and checks in for the night. But there's more to the awkward manager Norman than just his bizarre relationship with his mother and a penchant for taxidermy. So when Marion doesn't make it through the night alive, her family and lover are looking for her and their search uncovers a psycho. Spoilers for this 1960 film. <laughs> yeah, I think... So if you haven't watched Psycho, uh, either original or remake, I highly recommend you switch it off because we are going to spoil it. If you haven't seen it and somehow managed to avoid two of the major plot points within it, then well done. So, Catherine, um, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about these two films? I like Ben. I'm a bit rusty. So original Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Not sure what he's done since. Some small films, Vertigo, Rear Window, Rebecca, North by Northwest. You may have heard of him. Um, it's 1960, the original. It was based on a book from 1959, which that's really quick, like to turn that around. I know we're not in the facts section, the proper facts, but um, it was he he bought this secretly. He bought this, the rights to the book secretly um, so he could get it cheap. And then he bought up as many copies as he could find so that nobody would know what the plot point was, the plot point, the actual plot. Yeah, but it just feels like a really quick turnaround. 1959 book, released the film in 1960. You wouldn't get that today. Um, the remake was in 1998, directed by Gus Van Sant, which he did Goodwill Hunting and My Own Private Idaho. They're, they're the two that stood out to me, but I, I don't think I'd really actually heard of him. Um, he's also done like screenplays, music, photography, those kind of things. The budget for the original 
was about eight hundred thousand pounds in nineteen sixties money, which was all Hitchcock's own because the studio they just didn't trust that this was going to make money. They just didn't want to support it. It's kind of a transgressive film for the time, so they they just didn't want to put their name behind it. So Hitchcock did it all himself. He used his own product, television production company, um, and his own money. So that's why it's a fairly low budget, um, and that's why it's filmed in black and white. The remake was sixty million. We can talk about that if you want when we discuss the film. Let me just repeat that: sixty million for the remake, and we can discuss where we think that was spent. And that's um, that's twenty five years ago as well. I mean, that's not jump change today. No, no. Although it surprised me, this was twenty five years ago because I was vaguely aware there's a remake, but I just thought it was far more recent. Maybe because I thought it's got Vince Vaughn in it. And anyway, yeah, sixty million worldwide gross for both, so thirty two million for the original. But I think that's just domestic because the figures for older films tend to be just domestic, um, and I imagine worldwide release now and the many many years that it's been out it's probably grossed far more than that worldwide gross for remake was only 37 million so it didn't make its money back so make of that what you will and both are r-rated i sort of get why it may have had an r rating for the 1961 at the time i don't understand why it's got an r rating the remake had one but... well for one scene alone i can tell you why but we'll talk about that in a oh bit. Oh, I think I know the scene. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Catherine. So with the, the, the psychos, then as a we'll kind of turn them, I've, I've seen the original a bunch of times, but probably not for a long time. So I remembered all the kind of key kind of plot points and, of course, the two, touched earlier, the two kind of major reveals, if you like. But yeah, so I was curious to, I guess, sit down and watch it as a well, late 30-something, nearly 40-something now you know, more mature in terms of my film tastes. Because, uh, I, you know, of course, it's a classic. Uh, I probably watched it when I was far too young. And yeah, but never seen the remake. Never had the appetite to check it out. The more it's kind of kicked around our podcast lists, the more I've got very curious about it. And that's uh, something I'm sure we'll touch on when we get into the into the film itself. Um, but Catherine, you, you've your history with the films? I thought I'd seen Psycho. But I think I've just seen um, the clips from it, like the famous clips from it, like the iconic bits and, you know, where it's been parodied or copied or that kind of thing. Because a lot of this I didn't remember. I didn't remember the whole private detective. So I I don't know if I've just forgotten about it or I haven't seen it um, for the original. And then I've not seen the remake. Yeah, I saw, I remember being, I think, 10 maybe 11 and staying up late to watch psycho in the christmas holidays because it was on itv at like 11 o'clock one night and my dad was well aware that i was going to watch it but he did ask me the next day like did you did you make it through and i legitimately said to him i got as far as the shower scene and then i turned it off and he thought it's because it was too scary the truth Uh. was i was bored at that time well obviously i've seen it in the years since and yeah it's it's a classic like you said i I agree with you catherine it's not necessarily my favorite hitchcock film uh and yeah i don't think i'd seen the remake at all Uh, and if i did i don't think i had seen all of it because i have no memory of it whatsoever to kick us off catherine given your kind of as you say you've you've um not sure if you'd seen psycho in it 
its totality. Let us know your thoughts on the original Psycho. Fine. I, yeah, I, I liked it. I, the first half, I think just, I know you watched this when you were 10, Ben, but I sort of have similar feelings. I enjoyed the first half far more and I got quite bored after Janet Lee. Um, is it Marion? Marion was unalived. I think um, I just found myself waiting, waiting for it to be completed, waiting for it to be over, waiting for them to get, I, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, but I did, I did quite enjoy it. I enjoyed the, nothing was overdone. It was all, all the information was quite, I thought quite sparsely given and just little looks and little funny one-liners. I really enjoyed those. And they're not, it wasn't comedy, but these, these just, just a little comment that was genuinely, they, they were really quite funny. I liked Janet Lee. I liked Anthony Perkins. Anth- is it Anthony? Anthony Perkins. I really liked his portrayal because he, he was just, he just seems, I mean, certainly at first, a little bit socially awkward, not, you know, just just kind of shy, maybe introverted. He doesn't get a lot of contact with the outside world. He didn't seem overly psychotic or even strange, just just a bit socially awkward. And I liked his portrayal. I actually found him quite charming, which I, I think was, you know, probably what Hitchcock was going for and Anthony Perkins. So I liked that. I liked Janet Lee. Yeah, I I liked how when she'd stolen the money and was back in her room, she couldn't look at the money. She was she was, you know, busying herself quickly getting ready to leave. It's really hard not to compare this at the same time because we're talking about the original. It's really not hard not to do a side-by-side comparison because it is, as we'll discuss, a shot for shot remake. So it's in a way quite easy to compare, but I liked the way that was done. She was clearly conflicted. Um, but had made the decision and she couldn't look at the money and 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 she was she she did seem to be in some kind of um haste to leave yeah i enjoyed where it was going up until yeah the midway point i guess and after that i i was just sort of bored i mean obviously the music is a massive part of the film and as soon as that started right at the very beginning i did get quite excited because it is it it is it's such a big part of the film that you, I don't think you think Psycho without hearing that music, and and I think even people who don't relate it to Psycho know that music. It's so iconic, isn't it? Isn't it? But it's it's yeah. almost like if you'd never seen Jaws, you still know the mm-hmm. and you relate yeah. that to a shark. And I think if you'd never seen Psycho and you hear, ring, 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 you think of someone <laughs> stabbing a knife. But even just the strings at the beginning, before we get oh, yeah. to that bit, it's yeah, yeah. it is so well known. Well, and Jaws actually was inspired by the Psycho music. Yeah, it was good, fine. Okay. Next. Um, no, That's, so... that, I think I think it's fine. Might be the most lukewarm review of Hitchcock's Psycho that's ever been. Do you know? Do you know what it is? I mean, maybe that's it is unfair. It is a good film, and I can see why it's so revered and it's you know thought of as as an iconic film. I still don't think it's thought of as his best film, is it? But depends who you talk to. I can see that, and I'm sure that you guys could tell me why it is so, you know, it's up there. But I just didn't enjoy it that much. But yeah, maybe saying it's fine is a little um a little unfair to it. Well, so according to Letterbox, it's the second highest rated 
um, Hitchcock. Any guesses on the highest? I would say probably Rear Window, but well, for me it would be Rear Window, but it's probably Vertigo, yeah. isn't it? No, Rear Window's number one. Oh well, that's Rear right Window's because that, I think that Vertigo. that is his best film. Yeah. So yeah, when I was watching it, um, uh, I did something. Catherine mentioned there that um, that was funny. We we both chuckled uh, at it. Was the uh, Teddy was furious when he found out I'd taken tranquilizers, which was a good one. Yeah. So I, I think. There's a couple. Of, I mean, it is an absolute Hitchcock classic, so it's got all the Hitchcockness within it. He's doing a cameo outside very early on. Um, you've got all the driving scenes with the um, projector at the back. Um, there was one thing that was thought was really quite clever when when uh, Marion's driving the car and she hears the voices in her head. And I was trying to figure out is that is that just a voiceover from another scene or is that her internal thought process of what other people are saying about what she's done. So they might not be having that conversation at all. She did about the car salesman, um, guy she took the money from, obviously the people she worked for. I thought that was really quite clever. Uh, that was good. Great to see Martin Balsam, obviously, fan of the podcast. Yeah. Love him. Is he a fan uh, of the podcast? I, uh, I'd mean? be surprised. He's been dead for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's um, a podcast favourite for, for sure. Is that what you meant? Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant, yeah. And and I guess when you watch a film like this, it, it kind of, you know, the shower scene, as I said, we are going to spoil it. I can't quite figure out if it happens earlier or later than I thought because it's such a big moment. Like, normally that would be the end of a film, wouldn't it? But it, it is pretty much towards the middle, isn't it? It's, it's almost exactly the middle of the film. Yeah. yeah. I've got a little fact about that. Because of the way, because the studio didn't support it, and the way that it was filmed, it was filmed with the television production crew. And I think at one point Hitchcock, from what I've read, he didn't have that much confidence at one point in the film. He actually planned then he might release it as like two television specials, and it was that was the that was like the point that he cut it to to do that. Um, if if it was going to go out that way, because he used his his own television production company. Did I say that? I've probably said that a million times to film it all, and that's how it was kind of made so that you had the option to do it. So yeah, you half exactly halfway through. Yeah. Before we get to the shower scene, though, I thought um, I'd be interested to hear, particularly Catherine's thoughts on this. A, a woman alone driving with a lot of money. The policeman was very, very, very intimidating. Why mm-hmm. Why he was interested, and he wasn't, you know, I don't think he was interested in it because of the money, because he didn't know the money was taken. It wasn't about that at that stage, I don't think. But she was naturally nervous because of the money. But was there something else there? Or was it, or was she, were we, were we being projected that there was something else there that she was scared of? Well, she's on the run. She doesn't know if she's been, you know, made or anything like that. But it, I mean... I don't imagine it was that common for a, a woman, a solo driver, a woman solo driver across the country to, to be driving on her own without a male companion, maybe. Or So it would have been, she probably would have been nervous, but also the policeman would have been very interested in that. And also, I mean, cops in America are kind of intimidating anyway. Yeah. But yeah, it's but it is, it's probably an unusual sight. And he's found her asleep first thing in the morning at, in her car. I mean that's that's strange, isn't it? For for a woman at that time, for, even at this time, to be doing that out alone on a road, like a quite a lonely road, 
that's that's an unusual circumstance so he's bound to be interested in that i think yeah. there's a, i think there's a couple of things going on because i think part of the way that his sort of face fills the window is a another reflection of her paranoia and i think when she's hearing the voices in her head i do think that's her in a car on her own on a long journey having imaginary conversations she's imagining that they're saying those things about her that they're on her trail already you know and that time's of the essence so it's the paranoia kicking in but i think the reason that he initially goes over to check on her is because there's a woman on her own unconscious in a car and it's his duty to make sure that she's okay but it's the way that she reacts because she's so fidgety and one of the first things she says is no she's having a sleep is that a crime you know and it's like yeah i think there's more to this story i'm gonna i'm gonna keep asking my questions you know and it just sort of compounds from there and the way that she behaves at the car dealership and all that you know yeah yeah uh a couple of things i wanted to mention so of course the um the reveal norman bates is also mrs bates or mother bates uh, well so that particularly the final few minutes where he's in a cell and it gets described by the the, the doctor or psychiatrist around you know it's mrs bates talking now she's fully taken over and then that little look he gives at the end and it's kind of like it's one of those puzzles where it's like how much is norman in control and how much is he not i'm i'm, I'm curious to to think of, well hear your thoughts on what you what you think i'm a little bit biased on this one because i've seen the psycho sequels which address uh, this okay okay so i'll leave it to Catherine. i've got to say i just enjoyed it i didn't really have many thoughts about oh what does this mean for him i i think mental illness is so difficult anyway and and especially back in the 1960s you know obviously every year we're going to come on further and further in understanding it but even you're never going to get something that's like, oh, this is what this person has and this is how it how it operates and this is how it manifests. It's going to be different for every single person and you're going to get different levels and at different times of the day or different times of the month or whatever. Or, you know, people are going to be, he will have been in control more times and then other times not. You know, I, I don't think it's a, it, it's a prescribed sort of, this is how it is all the time. That's that's my impression of it. I I hated that. I didn't hate it, but I just felt that the psychiatrist scene. I, I I thought that the rest of the film, it it wasn't overly explanatory. It was sort of left to us to we we could understand what was going on without it being you know really really explained to us. But that and then that sort of flipped all on its head at the end, and it's like oh this is it's like yeah we kind of get it. Maybe you could have had a few bits here and there to sort of explain it, but it just felt very, yeah, well, I think we already get it. That that was going to be my my final point, actually. Like I think it probably contextualised that it was released in 1960 and attitudes to this kind of behaviour was was probably different and, and less understood or less acknowledged in some cases. Not suggesting we should acknowledge psycho killers, but as Catherine said, it's kind of mental illness and things. Um, and yeah, it did feel very, 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 very lengthy, the explanation at the end. But in the context of the film and the release time, kind of makes sense. So no, it is a classic. I think I agree with some of the things you guys have said so far around, you know, I think it's a great film, but well, perhaps not my favourite Hitchcock, but it is very, very good. Can I ask before, Ben, you, you have your say, did anybody think that Anthony Perkins 
looks very much like Andrew Garfield. At that, times, yeah. The definitely. whole way through the film, I was like, oh, it's Andrew Garfield. It's Andrew Garfield, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I, I was curious, actually, to maybe look it up and see if Andrew Garfield is a, you know, a fan of this performance because I definitely mm-hmm. got that vibe from him. Mm-hmm. Which is which is really interesting because I'm not sure Anthony Perkins got the credit that he deserved in a, in a lot of ways for for being the actor that he is, and he certainly had a fairly varied career after this. But I don't think he ever really escaped this role in the same way that Christopher Reeve is a very respected actor, but he never escaped Superman. You know, this was his mm-hmm. breakthrough role. And he is so fantastic in this, I think. It's a very, very interesting performance. You're dead on the money. At the, it, there's this nebbish awkwardness to him that somehow makes him more charming, you know, than he probably thinks he is. And I think this scene between him and Marion is is interesting from that regard because she's an obviously confident, you know, very attractive, very well-groomed woman that he's probably not used to seeing so he's he's nervous around her anyway what's most interesting about this film to me is the structure and the way that hitchcock plays his little tricks because he'd already made very big colorful exciting action movies basically before this and very tense thrillers north by northwest was like the indiana jones of its day you know it was a really sweeping action thriller that hadn't really been done in that way because everything else at the time was westerns and then rear window is the opposite it's like a really expensive studio movie but it's completely contained and i think with this what i found fascinating watching it this time is the way that he wrong foots you throughout so although there's narrative issues and dramatic issues and i agree with the things that you've already brought up starting right away with like that title sequence by Elaine and Saul Bass with just lines going across the screen and the Bernard Herrmann score, which is pitched to 11, you know, right. And then we go almost into something that he had never done before, which is the, the first 20, 30 minutes is basically a sweaty noir film, you know, uh, like, um, something that Humphrey Bogart would have been in, you know, 20 years earlier. And I think that's, possibly part of why you enjoyed the first half more Catherine because those are the kind of films that you really like right the sort of southern noirs and all that sort of stuff but it's it's so matter of fact you know you've got the date and the time you've got the stolen money you've got the boss you've got the lover this is classic sort of femme fatale or woman on the run kind of stuff from a noir film and it's shot in a completely boring way I looked up John L Russell the cinematographer and he has done nothing else worth mentioning. He worked every TV show that was going in the 50s and 60s. And he brings that approach to this film. It's very workmanlike. He's a workmanlike cinematographer. The visual flourishes come from Hitchcock. And I think it's really telling that actually, possibly with the exception of that scene where Norman is talking about the stuffed birds and how he likes taxidermy and that. That's, that's where the first interesting angle comes in when she mentions that Marion mentions that she doesn't like the way she heard his mother talk to her. And we get that first weird angle underneath Norman and that really expressionistic lighting and the stuffed bird in the background. It's, it's almost imperceptible, but you feel off straight away as his reaction changes, you feel weird. And that's the first really interesting visual thing that's happened in the film. 
But I think it's really telling that the shower sequence, which is a masterpiece of editing and framing and music and all of that, it's as a self-contained thing. It's rightly revered as a little mini masterpiece. Wasn't shot by John Russell. Saul Bass shot it. The guy who does Hitchcock's title sequences and those amazing visual moments. So he's storyboarded what are the details that we need in this film, in this sequence, and what can we get away with? And it's reported that maybe he didn't, like Hitchcock didn't even really direct most of that scene. He let Saul Bass direct it. I don't know, maybe you know more about that, Catherine. And then the other really exciting visual flourish, and it's one of the most bonkers shots, I think, in in all of his, uh, cinema history, and there's never really been another shot quite like it that didn't reference it, is when Martin Balsam gets it and falls down the stairs. And it's weird, and I think a modern audience could look at that and go, it, that's laughable. But it's still, I still find it, with the combination of music, that's when the music is most effective, I think. That piercing screech as as the overhead shot and Norman's mother just comes running out and then his face is gashed and he falls down the stairs. That's a really jarring moment. And it's such a striking image as well. And everything else in it is fairly boring. It's point and shoot. But again, there are these wonderful misdirections in the writing. So you know when you come back to see it again for the second time, knowing that Norman is the mother, little lines like, my mother, she isn't quite herself today, and I don't hate her, I hate what she's become, I hate the the um, the illness. He could very easily just be talking about himself. I don't hate my mother, I hate what she has become within me. I hate the mental illness that she's become within me. And then when Marion suggests putting her in a home, you know, if he can't look after her, and he says, you mean an institution, a madhouse? because he's contemplating that this is where he'll end up. Those things are really interesting. But then even when Lila, uh, Marion's sister, and Sam Loomis, Marion's lover, are on the trail to try and find her, they go and see a couple. I can't remember how they come to, to find them. But when they mention Mrs. Bates, they tell the story that she it was a murder-suicide. She's been dead for like eight years or whatever. And at that point, I was thinking, well, then surely that is the reveal that Norman must be the killer, right? Or there's another woman. And the line that's in there is, if the woman up there is Mrs. Bates, who did we bury, right? And that's a brilliant little twist on it to say, well, what if, what if it is Mrs. Bates? And actually the person that you buried was her first victim, you know? Now, all of that stuff is, is fascinating to me. And so I think it's, it is a cliche to say that Hitchcock is a master, I think modern film fans are probably much more comfortable talking about John Carpenter or Wes Craven, but it's inarguable that the reason that this is probably Hitchcock's most iconic film or, or, or influential film in terms of its impact on cinema is because he really did change the game. I mean, to, to make it for under a million and get back over $30 million in 96, that's crazy. That's a huge success. And it's it's because I think he knew he had some dynamite here. He was he was swinging for the fences. It wasn't what he was used to doing. But from sort of the Italian Jolly films to Brian De Palma to someone like Ty West, uh, who experiments with this similar kind of structure, you know, delaying and delaying and delaying the horror until it has the most impact. 
I think we still feel the shockwaves of this film and we still feel the shockwaves of Rear Window, to be fair. And I would say that anybody who would argue that this is not a horror film is out of their mind. This has influenced 60 years worth of horror films, not thrillers. It's a horror film. I just want to say, so when you were talking about how Anthony Perkins or you know Norman Bates was saying that basically he was talking about himself when he was talking about his mother, there was a bit as well he was talking about where, and I can't remember exactly how he framed it, but that he was saying that he didn't want to let her go cold. He didn't want to let, he wanted to keep the fires burning of his mother right. and rather than put her in, I think that's when he was talking about putting her in an institution that she, she, the fire would go out and he didn't want to let her go cold. And because I knew obviously who he was or who, you know, the ending. I, I did wonder if he was talking about himself and that's that was part of why he was becoming her because he didn't want her to disappear, to die out, to, you know, become sure. cold as it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I've already mentioned Anthony Perkins and, and I think an inspired bit of casting. He's absolutely phenomenal in it. We've given lip service to Martin Balsam. Uh, maybe not a name that people recognise, but he's one of the 12 Angry Men. He was in Cape Fear. He was the guy who gets away with it in taking a Pelham one, two, three, or does he? He's such a brilliant actor. And and this reminded me of why, because you have quite stagey, classically 50s and 60s kind of actors elsewhere in the cast. I think it's another reason that the second half of the film suffers, apart from some of the tension is diffused. I don't think, um, is it Vera Miles who plays Lila, is anywhere near as compelling as Janet Lee. But Martin Balsam is, uh, and he's such a naturalistic actor, which is why, you know, him being one of the 12 angry men is is so perfect because there were, it was this clash between the new breed of actors and the classic Hollywood actors. And when you've got him and Anthony Perkins together, both playing their little games, Martin Balsam setting his little traps, Perkins trying to be evasive and he's not good enough at it, that is riveting. I felt I, one of the best sequences in the film. So once Martin Balsam buys the farm, I think it is inevitably downhill from there until you get to the end. The final scene, yeah, it does explain a bit too much. I think it's important to contextualize this again and say there hadn't necessarily been a film that explained psychopathy before. We, we maybe had seen it, you know, in the gangster films and the film noirs and stuff like that, but not on a clinical level like this and probably not in in sort of the description of a serial killer because Bates as presented by Robert Block in the book is based on Ed Gain and there have been a number of films made about Ed Gain one of them is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is based on him, on him as well so he's a very prolific serial killer in the 50s who had an obsession with his mother uh, kept her corpse in his front room after she died uh, Science of the Lambs was partly inspired by him as well because he skinned his victims and and put them in, you know, turned them into furniture and stuff. The only reason I'm saying all that is, first of all, to say that dialogue scene at the end to us is clunky, but at the time was necessary, I think, to explain this radical idea. And I love the fact that he's initially just dismissed as a transvestite. Why was he wearing his mother's clothes? He's a transvestite. And I goes, mm, not exactly. And it's a way of bringing the audience in and saying, you've probably heard of a transvestite. Well, we're going to go one further, right? The other reason that I'm mentioning it is because I think in Anthony Perkins' performance, there is something that is just believable enough 
even now, 60 years later, that we know a lot more about psychopathy and sociopathy and serial killers and all this kind of stuff, that I think he's still believable, given all of that additional knowledge that we have, you know? And that, to me, was super, super exciting. So I think the highs in this, and there are sort of five or six points throughout that I was just mesmerized by, justify it still as a as a really gripping film for me, even if it does have some clunky narrative flaws. That is our thoughts on the original Psycho. Shall we get into the remake? Well, I'll I'll, I'll let Catherine give her thoughts, actually, before I spiel away. Catherine. The Psycho remake, which we watched the next night. What were your thoughts on it, Catherine? Um, it's a perfect film, no notes. I'm sorry. I mean, it's the worst film ever made, no notes. That's how I feel on the film. I just, I, I don't know why it was made. I don't know why it was made. If you're going to make a shot for shot remake, at least I'd have a point to why. Because you make something because you think you can make it better, surely. Not because otherwise, what's the point? If it's already a, a good film and seen as one of the greats, like why are you making it unless you think you can do something different with it? I've no idea why this film was made. No idea, and I disliked it from the very start. I I disliked it so much. I can't tell you how much I disliked it. The color was garish. The people, the characters, the characterization was just so bad. I I didn't get them. They weren't, they didn't, they just all seemed like really aggro, just really annoyed everything. That there was no there was no subtlety to them. I didn't like Anne Hesh or Hesh's performance. I didn't I thought when in that scene at the beginning where she's in the hotel room with Viggo Mort Mortensen, there was no um wasn't necessarily the chemistry, but it, it didn't seem genuine, no genuine, maybe chemistry is the word I'm looking for, but they, she just seemed sort of snippy and I, I don't know, just a bit. When they were talking about, you know, he was talking about not having any money and coming, you know, or what's she going to do, come and live with him in the back, you know, the back room of a shop or I can't remember exactly how it's described. And, you know, he's, he's in all this debt and it didn't seem like a genuine conversation. It just seemed like throwaway lines. They were just getting the lines out to say them because that's what they had to say because this is just a shot-for-shot shot remake. There was no... I didn't find it believable anyway. You know, when she's stolen the money and she's back at her her apartment getting ready to leave, she was just, like, flowing around the apartment, like, oh, should I take this or take this? There was no urgency. There was no real... She didn't seem to have any... Con conflicting thoughts about whether she should take this money or not. I, I certainly didn't get that from her uh, when she fell asleep in the car. And the, the police, James Remar, wasn't it? It was James Remar from um, Dexter's dad. He was the policeman in this situation. And I found him quite intimidating, far more so than in the first one. But I don't know, th there was a bit of nervousness, but she had no fear of him. She wasn't terrified of... She, again, she just seemed snippy. Like, yeah, what do you want? Like, yeah, I'm just going to drive off. Like, what What do you want? I, it, none of it gelled the characterizations. Uh, and at the end, so when um, Julianne Moore and Viggo Mortensen, isn't it? And they're, you know, they've been so worried about their sister, apparently. And at the end, I don't remember this in the first one. And I feel like if it had been this way, I'd have picked up on it. But to the psychiatrist, 
oh, did he kill my sister then? And he goes, yeah. And it's like, oh, so this is the woman you've been, this is your sister who you've been, has been missing for a week, you've been searching for. And he just told you that she's definitely dead. She's sunk in a swamp. And you go, oh, yeah, oh. Like, both her and the boyfriend, like, what? I don't get it. And I, th I feel like in the 1960s version, I, I certainly didn't feel that way. I don't remember their reactions, but it would have been more real anyway in the 1960s where out, outward, you know, displays of emotion were, you know, you're far more restrained in that that regard, you know, in, in public anyway. So it may have been more natural for you to have a more restrained reaction to being told that your sister is dead and in a swamp has been killed by a serial killer. I, I found it all so frustrating. And Vince Vaughn, I've got no words. I've got no words. What was he doing? There was no, like from the very beginning, he was clearly trying to display that he was not right. And I get that maybe that was a deliberate choice because everybody knows how psycho goes. Very few people don't know that, you know, that he is actually, you know, Norman Bates and he is his mother and blah, blah, blah. I, and maybe it was a deliberate choice because, well, people already know, so what's the point? But it just, didn't work the the weird giggle he did and he just had these like almost like deliberately evil looks it wasn't the right time it wasn't the right time so i feel like this might be the worst one we've done and i know whoa, whoa, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. no no don't point talk about point break. break no because point break at least was a different film it was it did something different to the original it might not have been good it did something different this was this was a shot for shot remake and it was, and no, oh, it's, no one picked was, up litter in this. No. Oh, oh, this is the other thing, right? This is going to be my theme of season three. So season one was litter. Season two was men, attractive men. Robert Shaw. Um, just, just normal men. Just, just normal, innocent men. <laughs> yeah, season three is cleaning because in neither film did they do a good job in cleaning up. Just oh. like whack and mop round like, i had exactly the same note like gone girl would be laughing at norman bates because his but his cleanup does not survive the luminol test at all i don't think either of them do to be honest like this is a it's gonna be a crime scene it is a crime scene like where's the bleach where's the disinfectant where's the scrubbing where's on the knees scrubbing just whacking a mop round it was oh it it I can't get over that. And so that is going to be, that's what I'm going to be looking out for this season. Clearly. But that's why he, that's, he would have got caught eventually. Yeah. Because I looked it up, you know, Luminol helps you see where blood has been. Mm -hmm. It was invented in 1902 and it had already been used for 20 years by the time the first Psycho came out. So he mm. definitely would have got caught. I'm struggling to think of anything good in this film, anything that I like better. I love Julianne more normally. I just didn't, I just didn't in this film. Well, um, yeah, I guess I've got to tell my thoughts on the remake. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. I did go on a little bit. I'm, no, I'm no, really, no. really curious how you're going to rank it, though. You know, like, what's your rating yeah. going to be? Well, we'll get, we'll get there. It's um, a mystery, isn't it? Yeah. So um, I made a note about halfway through. Appreciate you guys <clears throat> aren't particularly huge um, football fans. Um, so this might not resonate with you, but it might resonate with a few listeners. So um, football shirts are quite expensive, and they're getting more expensive every day. Um, but they're kind of designed that they're breathable. So when you play football, yeah, of course, you're running around, you get a bit sweaty, but you, 
if you wear it for five minutes, you'll be you'll be all right. If you're running around playing football, you might start to sniff a little bit, right? Um, but you can buy these knockoff kind of Chinese Asian football shirts for about 10 quid. And they look absolutely spot on, exactly the same. But you stink wearing them for five minutes. <laughs> this is not and, where I thought this story was going. And that is what the Psycho remake is. So, <clears throat> it, because look, so. So um, it was interesting. So I put the DVD on, um, and uh, I think we were making teas, coffees, drinks, whatever. And I tried to go back to the menu, and I couldn't go back to the menu. It went straight into the film. And then the menu appeared at the end of the film, and I could access the menu then. And there's a whole kind of um, you know fact section and different things. And I, I knew a lot of this already, but, but Gus Van Sant was obsessed with this film. He, he loves it, absolutely loves it. And he's openly said, this was an experiment to, to see what would happen. And I've seen people quote things like, you know, if I copied the Mona Lisa exactly the same, it still wouldn't, you, you, you know, if you went in, it still wouldn't be the Mona Lisa. And no, can, Sorry, you know, can I just jump in? When you said Van Sant loves this film, do you mean he, he loves his own version oh, of it or he loves the Hitchcock the, one? The, the Hitchcock one. He's, he's right. obsessed by Psycho. The, the right, right, right. Okay. Loves it. So... The, the film itself is, it's bizarre, like how, so we talked about like the opening sort of scene where it tells you it's in, uh, we're in Phoenix, Arizona, the date, the time, the year, et cetera, et cetera. So this is obviously set in, was it set in 1998 or 99? Yeah, yeah. But the colors and the feeling of it was quite 60s. Like the, the clothes she was wearing, I felt were quite 60s dresses. No, are we not feeling that? So not necessarily being in the 60s but trying to bring out some of this no i thought i had more of a 70s vibe if anything yeah, but, but, yeah, a yeah. but a 90s as well because it is it was the 90s i mean, I mean the 90s <laughs> was 30 years ago nearly so the first change i noticed um obviously the cash amount had been increased you know inflation and all that stuff so it was four hundred thousand pounds cash but the rest of it played out exactly the same did you pick up on the uh the gus van sant cameo i wouldn't know Gus Van Sant if he came in here in Teabag. No. What's he look like? Well, so no, no. So where Hitchcock is standing outside the uh, the office, and he's ah. there's a guy in a cowboy hat, and I believe that is Gus Van Sant. So yeah, he's he's doing his Hitchcock cameo, isn't he? We talked about the driving shots earlier, and the reason why they work so well in the original was the that's kind of how you had to shoot driving. You had to have a projector screen. You had to have the camera um, and the car stationary. So it looked like they were driving. And it felt like trying to copy that in, but actually driving. And it felt weird. It felt really weird. It just felt odd and off. Same with the kind of monologues. It all just felt a little bit, a little bit strange. So she gets to the, um, to the car, uh, to the, sorry, to, to the car salesman. Now, did you pick up on who the car salesman was? Well, he is from the aforementioned original Point Break. Yes. James LaBrosse. Yes, it was Roach from Point Break. So that was that was like, okay, cool, interesting. Uh, and then it just meanders into, you're literally watching the same film with, I feel for the cast of it because they've been given, we're going to shoot it the same, it's the same script, and I can sense they're trying to do something 
differently with it, but they can't. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it must have been so hard. And like Vince Vaughn, I think this was before. So this was before he did Zoolander and Old School. So this was before his comedy run, wasn't it? Yeah, he'd done um, Swingers in 96, and that got him Jurassic Park 2, which I think was 97. And this would have yeah, been yeah. the next film after that, I think. So he, he hadn't quite hit his uh, all the hits of when I was a sort of teenager and stuff. But that's who I see Vince Vaughn as. <laughs> so seeing him in this was like really, really awkward. And he's actually been in some, you know, decent films I've seen and some good performances. But yeah. again, it's like trying to, I mean, it's not impossible to try and replicate what Anthony Perkins did. So when you try and do something a bit different, it's immediately going to come as kind of off. There was a point when he was, um, when they, it was the scene where they were, you know, having um, dinner in the the office with the birds and things. And I thought, actually, when he got serious and when, you mm. know, she'd started talking about his mother, you know, she, w- she wouldn't like it. He, she shouldn't talk to him like that and maybe think about putting her at home and that kind of thing. And he's on his own there. And he got quite serious. And I actually, I thought his performance was really good there where he he stopped doing the trying to make himself seem psychotic. I, I quite like that bit. It's probably the only bit. Yeah. And I haven't really got much more to say to you. It's really quite difficult to articulate. I don't want to say, don't want to say bad because it is bad, but in the context of it being an experiment as a shot for shot remake to see whether you can do this, it's done that. And the answer is no, you can't do it. We have to talk about this. Uh, well, there's two scenes I think we've got to touch on. Uh, obviously, the shower scene. Uh, it's in color. It feels more. Um, it feels more graphic because I think quite infamously with the um, with the first one, you never actually see uh, a knife go into Marion, do you? No, you don't. It, it, it's you just see the the spots of blood yeah, in the water. Yeah. Well, if and you th- freeze frame it, you do. Do you? Ah, yeah. Okay. There's, um, there's one point where it there's about an inch it goes into the, I think it's their belly. All you need. That's all you need. So um, I, I'll I'll talk about the fact later. Sorry, carry okay. on. Yeah, and it's you know it's bloody because it's in color, and I think with that that doesn't add anything. I think I think it feels when you watch the original, it feels like it's red even though it's in black and white. You know what I mean? Like it's just that you know it's blood and it feels like it. Also when. Uh, Martin Balsam in this. Bill Macy. Yes. Bill, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he gets killed, obviously they, they replicate the stairs scene, but he does get a slash across his face. And then, did you see the two inserted shots for absolutely no reason? Well, there was some of that in the shower scene as well. There are these little surreal cutaways to like, they're almost like effect shots, aren't they? It, like birds and and moonlight and things like that yeah they do it in the two kill scenes you get these very almost subliminal flashes of something else going on which i have to say regardless of what you feel about gus van sant is doing elsewhere in the film really wanky really horrible (laughs) didn't enjoy those bits at all no no they they were unnecessary and talking of wanky (laughs) yes Um, now the bit that you're about to talk about is probably the most culturally iconic moment from this iteration of the film. I remember it's all anyone talked about when this when this came out. Yeah. So when Bates goes to his peephole to have a little spy and Master uh, Bates, if you will. Just Master Bates. Yeah. 
it just feels so unnecessary. Like we 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 get that he's well. So I guess in the original, he was clearly attracted to her, but was it a sex thing? Do you know, I don't think it was ever. It depends how you read Norman's uh, mother character, I guess. Mm. You know, I'm the only woman for you, let's say. So I'll kill this bitch, you know. But from Norman's point of view, yeah, there's a reason that he's spying on her. There's a reason that he's looking at her get undressed through a peephole. You know, I think it's clearly sexual in the original film. It's it's just far more creepy in the original film. He's he's absolutely still. He could be doing you know other things further you know down further down, but you you don't see it because he's absolutely still. And I found that a lot creepier than than what happens in the second one. It almost cheapened it a little bit for me in that it almost leads you to sort of make an assumption then that the whole reason for the kill is far more sexual whereas in the original it's like you say you can interpret it either way you can interpret it the way you want and it leaves it a lot more open whereas this i felt like it's probably leading you more down a path which might not have been the case and that might just be how i'm reading it but i just it it just felt cheap to me i actually i I agree on a on a on a visceral level or whatever in, in terms of my reaction to seeing it or more importantly hearing it it is one of those things yeah it is one of those things where you just think oh god really did we need this yeah but if you go back and think about norman in the 60 film it could be interpreted that as much as he is sexually attracted to the naked marion crane he's impotent and so the knife becomes what he's going to penetrate her with right in this version i think it's really confused because Everything else in Vince Vaughn's portrayal, to me, is fairly gay-coded. He's definitely very effeminate at times. And and his posture and his mannerisms and his clothing would suggest this is certainly a closeted gay. So the idea of him masturbating over her can be one of two things. It can either be that he's trying to, sorry that I have to put it this way, wank himself straight. Okay. And it's, it's... his hatred for himself that causes him to kill or whatever or he does succeed in his mission and it's the guilt of what he's doing which colors what he then goes and does to marion after but i think either way on a, on a sort of an intellectual level at least it does kind of work it's well, just messy you, yeah when you explain it like that actually i i feel better about that scene and it i feel like Actually, that could really explain things maybe even better than in the first one. So you like this film now? Well, Mm. no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I I like your explanation there because that had not occurred to me. There were two quick final points. Uh, The first one, loved it when uh, Robert Forster showed up. The the cast on this film is incredible. Yeah. Um, There's no denying that. I was hoping they might throw a little twist in there where he just kind of makes him disappear, <laughs> you know, sells him a vacuum or whatever. Yeah. And quite phenomenally, I'm not sure, Ben, uh, if you watched all of the credits like we did. We just Oh, I on. did. Yeah. Yeah. In memory of Alfred Hitchcock. That's end. not the one I thought you were going to say. Ooh. There's another credit. Special thanks to John Woo for his kitchen knife. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow, Which I... I didn't do any research on, but I'm really curious about that. 
so so yeah i mean i'll let ben chat about his thoughts of the film in a second it's it's a an interesting experiment that failed in my view at least i have little else to say chinese knockoff football shirt well okay i do think it is as a piece of entertainment a failure so i'll just put that out there if you're going to remake psycho you've got to do something different with it and it's you can argue that van sant did do something different with it he did it in color he actually excised some of the scripts so there's none of the mention of transvestitism and the um doomed lovers and the other two girls that were killed years earlier all of that stuff's gone which is really interesting i think but as an experiment to echo partly what neil was saying i do think it's legitimate because i think <laughs> it doesn't I, I wish you could all see the eye roll i just got of catherine there is, are you okay did you hurt the back of your head with that one i i that from the very first moment i mean first of all i think that crane shot over Phoenix, into the window, into the bedroom, over Anne Hesch and, and Viggo Mortensen. That's a fantastic shot. I mean, really, really well done. Uh, and it's your boy, Christopher Doyle. I don't know if you noticed that, uh, Neil, the guy who shot Hero. He's the cinematographer on this. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So a far more talented cinematographer than John L. Russell was. But straight away, Loomis and Crane are so different. And they're saying the same lines, but they're doing it almost with a sleazier almost kind of southern gothic tone everything's a little bit cheaper i think there's there's none of the the class that someone like janet lee brings to proceedings and i i do feel it's deliberate and it's a re-adaptation of the text in the same way that hamlet is still performed today and we have modern interpretations of it or king lear or richard iii or whatever it's taking a text and it's reinterpreting it and it's the reinterpretation that forces you to reanalyze the text, whether you like it or not. Watching the Gus Van Sant version will have given you an appreciation of elements in the Hitchcock one that you possibly didn't have before, or certainly would have just given you an appreciation of the Hitchcock film. So it's a different reading, and it's an experiment in form. And I agree with something that you said earlier, Catherine, which is if you're going to remake something, whether it's a cover version of a song or a remake of a film, and I'm sure we've established it on this podcast before. If we haven't, it's a disgrace that we got to season three without saying it. If you're going to remake something, you should have a chance at improving on it. You don't remake the best films that were ever made. You don't remake Indiana Jones to reference it a second time. You remake something that had a good idea that wasn't well delivered the first time. I always say Highlander. Great concept, not a very good film. Remake Highlander, right? So by doing a Holy Grail film, it used to be a joke in Hollywood that there are so many remakes that one day they'll remake Psycho. And Gas Van Sant did it. And a lot of people went, see, it's bobbins. But I did find the first half of this film really fascinating. There's an actor who plays the uh, the guy whose money Marion takes, and I don't know this actor's name, but he's familiar to me for playing a very sleazy actor in Mulholland Drive. And it's this word sleaze that I keep coming back to, because when he walked in into the film, I thought, yeah, there is a bit of a David Lynchian feel to this, because it's the same framing that Hitchcock used, but in a modern setting. It's the same text, but with more modern actors. And it 
it feels wrong. It feels off kilter. And it was strangely mesmerizing to me, like a David Lynch film, like that dream logic. So when this actor from a David Lynch film turned up, I was like, aha, yes, this is helping me, you know, key into it. So the framing is basically the same, but the timing and the delivery is different, which makes it uncanny. But the overt statement that it is 1998, now that we're 25 years removed from that, for me, made it play. It did sort of work. I don't think 25 years ago, without having that perspective, it would have worked for nearly as many people. And I think then it would have felt pointless and probably misread by most audiences as cynical capitalism. You know, let's just remake a film and make some money off the name. And I don't think that was the driving force. And I don't think the driving force from Van Sant was even to make a piece of entertainment. If you look at the films that he did earlier on in his career, you mentioned My Own Private Idaho, and the film that he did after that, even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Neither of these films are films that I particularly like. They have fascinating moments in them, but they are experiments in what a film can be. And it's unfortunate that he went on to have two really successful films, which were To Die For and Goodwill Hunting before this, because I think they're actually his best films. But this is much more like the films that he did before those. It is purely playing with the form and challenging you with its formalism. So I don't think it's culturally significant within the pantheon of cinema, you know, in the way the original film was. But I do think it is artistically legitimate. I think the cast is amazing. I think Anne Hesch is an interesting choice for Marion because she's nothing like Janet Lee, apart from the fact that she's got fairly short hair. She's far more bohemian in style than the classic sort of Janet Lee. James Remar as the cop is amazing. His voice is incredible. James LeGrosse, you mentioned. It's the stylistic approach to the acting throughout is, is so different. But what's annoying about that to me is that all of the actors seem to be in different films. I love, like you said, I love Viggo Mortensen and I love Julianne Moore, but they are not in the same film that Vince Vaughn is in. And Vince Vaughn is not in the same film that William H. Macy is in. And William H. Macy is not in the same film that uh, Anne Hesch is in. So the biggest change is when we finally meet Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates. And it's just wrong. That scene between him and Anne Hesch, when they're having a sandwich and that, he doesn't have any of the charm, any of the illusion that he's anything other than the psycho of the title. That mystery is completely gone. This guy is a weirdo. And the only bit in that scene that I like is there's a moment where he repeats her line about running away to a private island like you. And Anne Hesch physically recoils and scratches herself when he says it, which is I, I love that as a moment in acting. And it does at least clue you into the fact that this wasn't Vince Vaughn making this choice, this artistic choice as an actor. This was Gus Van Sant making this choice with him, right? So it is at least deliberate. It's just the wrong choice. <laughs> right? I think Vince Vaughn is terrible in this. And I think it's really weird that I don't want to upset anyone by using the term gay coded. I hope that's okay to say that. But it, what I mean by that is without overtly stating that Norman is gay, I think there are clues within Vaughan's performance that he possibly is. And that's a very strange thing to come from Gus Van Sant, who I believe is also gay and has is certainly made some iconic gay cinema to make the psycho killer of your film, at least in, in, implied as 
that being partly driven by perhaps his repressed sexuality coming from a director who's directed so much cinema that's very representative of, of you know gay men up to this point is a very very odd choice so that's the point where it starts to go off the rails it starts to feel like amdram vaughn is just odd uh it's a it becomes just two actors reciting dialogue at each other rather than two characters talking the shower scene shouldn't really work at all but i think it does still have a visual pizzazz of its own there's a fractal shower curtain the splashes of red blood but it's here in the in the running time that the adherence to the formalism the shot for shot approach completely derails the film it needed to be scuzzier it needed to be gorier it needed to be shocking i think to elevate this and sticking to his sort of thesis at that point is where it becomes completely dramatically detached so yeah i think that the, the shower scene at least is visually exciting in its own way but i think it is where the herman score which they have brought back albeit with with danny elfman helping out becomes a key factor in oh this just doesn't work now i think if it had been ditched the score had been ditched for something more contemporaneously unnerving it may actually have cohered more as an artistic exercise and to be honest after that is where i I, I really started to tune out of the film. I think there are good bits started about. I think William Macy is a good updating of Martin Balsam. And again, in his interrogation scene with Norman, he's killing it. He's absolutely great. Vince Vaughn, less so. And William Macy does some very good phone acting, as Martin Balsam did. Um, Philip Baker Hall turns up. We've got a full-on... Paul Thomas Anderson reunion at this point with Julianne Moore and him. And, but I think if there's one lesson about this kind of adaptation, it's the shot for shotness that's the problem. You can use the same script and reinterpret it. You can't do that and use the exact same visual form, albeit in color, as 60 years earlier. The blocking of the actors needed to be updated because it's stiff. And it is just actors reciting dialogue at that point in a vacuum. And it doesn't suit the cinematic style anymore. There's a bit where Vigo and Julianne Moore and Vince Vaughn are all winking at each other. The hell was that? Yeah. yeah. That's so bizarre. Um, and then finally, the reveal of Vaughn in the wig and the dress is absolutely laughable. It's... It's completely ridiculous. It's completely dra dramatically inept at this point. And the narrative drive has completely fallen apart. The mystery element does not work anymore. It hadn't done up to that point because we know Vince Vaughn is the killer. So this is this is kind of like my 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 thesis on this is that as an experiment, I think it has value. I think it has value in terms of challenging the audience, especially people who are film people, let's say, in, in saying, why doesn't this work? If it's exactly the same, why doesn't it work? Okay. And I think there are some things in it that are interesting and do work. But as a piece of entertainment, as a piece of drama, as a horror film, th there's nothing shocking in it apart from a bit of masturbation. And then the very final shot, when they pull the car out of the swamp, we linger on it and do, again, another sort of 
quite impressive crane shot away and we're lingering on it for such a long time whereas at the the end of the hitchcock film we just see the car getting pulled out of the swamp and it's like right they'll find the money they'll find marion's body case closed right that's it in this we linger as the scene sort of dissipates and what was really interesting about that for me the the credits play and this completely different score comes in and it's much more like a raikuda like walter hill or or southern gothic kind of thriller from the 90s and actually that i could have done with more of if they got rid of the iconic bernard herman score and really lent into that sweaty scuzzy feel that the early part of the film had i think it could have been something it could have been something actually that would have worked dramatically on a different level so yeah that's it really for me i didn't hate it i don't think it works though there we go i i dislike i dislike how you have pointed out how this could actually have some merit i dislike how you've dissuaded me from absolute hatred of this film i still don't like it but stop being reasonable and rational and well making so things we, uh, sound good we can always spin it back up Catherine, with the director's commentary <laughs> I want a divorce. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, so, I, I just don't ever want to watch it again. Ever. Okay. I, I we'll think talk can, about you, it. Yeah, you can stipulate. You can that. I'll go straight to divorce. I and mean, we've got nine episodes we've got to get through yet. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. If you can bring it back around with a different film, Neil. Well, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, I can't remember what's next. I'm sure we'll get to it in a second. So that is our discussion on Psycho and it's shot for shot remake Psycho. So, Catherine, you did tease us with your uh, a few stats and facts. You got any other tidbits to share with us? Stats and facts. Well, I've got um, some scores on the doors. IMDb scores, eight and a half out of ten for the original Psycho, as you'd expect, I guess. Four point six out of ten for the remake. Which, when I read that, I was so surprised. I was like, "Why is it not like two? But I'm not a film critic, clearly. So, whatever. Well, you are now. Uh, am I? Am I though? Do we just come here and spout a load of rubbish? Uh, Rotten Tomatoes percentage scores 96%, 95% um, audience score for the original. And then it's the 40, 28, 40%, 28% audience score for, um, for the remake. So, I mean, there are some critics that like it then, but not very many well, Joe Publics. When I when I looked at um, critic critical reviews, there were so many positive ones. Yeah, and and I it it just shocked me. It it really shocked me, and I started to go, "Am, am I the weirdo here?" Which I don't yes. know. But yeah. but then again, you have you have pointed out some good aspects of the film. Not mm, good aspects. Some you, you've changed my not changed my mind. I don't want to say that either. You've given me pause for thought. Let's put it like that. I mean, even even the original had mixed reviews initially. I mean, obviously later it's been reappraised as iconic and masterly and all those kind of words you associate with Hitchcock. But um, yeah, certainly initially it wasn't adored. And I think that's probably because it was shocking. There's no question it was shocking. I mean, killing your, we didn't really talk about it, but killing your leading lady off halfway through the film. That was a huge shock. And it's almost given away in the credits, which I find interesting because it's an and Janet Lee, isn't it? Whereas really the audience will be expecting her to be the protagonist. And, you know, and Hitchcock was very adamant that people wouldn't be allowed into the cinema after the film had started to preserve that surprise. 
so I, I guess that some people did like the remake as well. I did like what one literary crit- critic said, um, Camille Paglia. I don't know if I want to leave this in, actually, considering what's since happened to Anne Heche, but it was um, the only reason to watch it was to see Anne Heche being assassinated. Yeah. yeah. Maybe That's... maybe we don't put that in, Ben. But um... well, No, no, I think there's, <laughs> there's a point there is you wouldn't get away with that in a review today. No. But um, obviously I was in my full 100% hatred of the film when I read that and I found it extremely funny. I've got I've got some facts. I, I mean, I feel like a lot of these are very widely known for, for Psycho, certainly. Um, you know, it's got the, the first flushing toilet ever seen on cinema screen. And I, I genuinely got a little bit excited when I saw the, the toilet shot. I was like, classic, classic first ever flushing toilet. Yeah, I mean, okay. <laughs> good, good for you, Ben. I'm glad. I'm really glad you got something out of that. It's the most iconic mm. toilet flush in cinema history. I just see that every single day. It's not. It's not new to me. It's not new. Um. So the the shower the shower scene was supposed to be silent. It was just going to be Janet Lee's screams. Screams. Sorry, I can't speak today. Um. It was supposed to be no no score at all on that. But Bernard Herman like obviously worked his magic and um. It completely changed Hitchcock's mind, so he he did put that in because he came up with the, now, the iconic. You know, that would have been a baller move for the remake to strip that iconic piece of score mm. out there and do that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have just Anna Hesh screaming because that actually would have been quite intense. That might have been interesting. Yeah, yeah, be interesting to see how it sounded. Um, the mother's voice was actually Anthony. Anthony, was it really? Oh, it, well, yes, it was. It was. He, they took the so they stripped the the bass out of it and the like the tenor out of it and kept in that the higher notes but he also overlaid it with three other female voices right. i didn't recognize it as his at all no i didn't um in some of some of the things i've read it said oh you can clearly still hear it's him i, I was like mm, i yeah. i couldn't at all um but apparently it was his voice that was used and then just overlaid with three others which to me makes it not his voice but mm, okay. what, what about what about vince vaughn I could, I didn't find anything on that, and then just a little a little trivia fact. So it wasn't necessarily going to be set in December, but when they did the overhead shot, you know, the, the helicopter shot when they first came in and flew into that window, the very very beginning, um, there were still Christmas lights visible, and because there were still Christmas decorations up, they said, well, we'll have to make it, have to make it December now. Just one other actor that we we didn't mention that was in this, and I actually think one of the big improvements over the '60s film. Uh, Rita Wilson, Mrs. Tom Hanks, is the other woman that works in the real estate office with Anne Hesch. And she has that one line about the guy who brings in the money, which is, um, he was flirting with you. Or he must not have, he must have noticed my <laughs> engagement ring or something like that. I yeah. think Rita Wilson actually did a lot more with that line than the original actor did. And I thought... That was it was early enough in the film where I was thinking, I'm I'm kinda into what they're doing with these scenes. I'm into it. So little shout out to Rita Wilson there. <clears throat> I've just got one little fact, which is technically not about psycho, but I'm gonna weave it in. Anthony Perkins uh wrote a script for a film, and I've seen that film. What yeah. was the film? Uh and he wrote it with, if you bear with me, he wrote it with Stephen is it Stephen Sondheim? Oh, yeah. Composer, yeah, yeah, West Side Story. Anthony Perkins wrote The Last of Sheila. 
which ah. is a murder mystery on a boat, which is heavily influential for the Glass Onion. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Or Knives Out Glass Onion. And do you know why they wrote a murder mystery? Because they used to play them all the time with their Hollywood buddies back Different in the day. Different time, wasn't it? Different time. Yeah. So there you go. Little Anthony Perkins there. It's a really good film, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I really want to see that. Yeah, yeah. Get to Snips. I forgot um, one, one other actor that we haven't mentioned. Flea. Yes. Flea from the Red Hot Chili eight. Peppers, isn't it? So yeah. we're... Have we had Flea before? I know we've had Anthony Kiedis was in uh, the original Point Break, but one by one we're getting the Red Hot Chili Pepper assemblage. But I think <laughs> Flea has been in a number of Gas Van Sant movies, so I think it, that was probably just like he got his buddy in there, you know. Oh, was he the um, the shop worker, the one yeah. who was told to go for his lunch? That's right. right. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's our discussion there on the remake. Now we get to the bit that we all shed blood, sweat, and tears over, and feel like we need a shower after we've thought about them. You and that be. is our uh, our three-word reviews. Um, I'm really um, excited. I mean, you normally... I mean, this is this is your thing, isn't it, Neil? So It's my, it's my thing. Yeah, some of the, some of the greatest things you've ever said have been three-word reviews, and also some of the most <laughs> like ridiculously pointless things you've ever said have been three-word reviews. I don't mean on this podcast, I mean in life. In life in general. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot of three-word reviews in my life. Um, yeah. All I could, uh, so I'm not sure if this is going to quite work. So I'm not sure it's the right audience for it. But my three-word review is I was listening to some music in the car and this song came on. That's more than three words. <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. But was, this song came on. It's a bit of a dancey, funky track. And um, uh, my three-word review is shit but psycho. Oh, it's shit, but it's psycho, a little bit psycho. It's really shit. So shit, but psycho. Oh, okay. okay. Instead of sweet, but psycho. Is that right? Yeah, I, I know the song, yeah. I, I, I think you should have gone with like sweaty Chinese shirt or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, do you know what? I hadn't thought of that until I said it. And I was like, yeah, that's probably a better three hundred review. So shit, it's shit. It's shit, shit but psycho. psycho. Yeah, it works. Shit, but psycho. Yeah. It. There you go. Go on, Catherine, what you got? Well, I feel really mean now. And and because, like I say, you've slightly, slightly lessened how much I hate this film. It feels a bit mean. It was going to be Gus Van Don't, but... (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I'll keep it, but I'm sorry, Gus. I do feel a little little mean. Mine's very boring. Dramatically inert experiment. It just sort of sums it up for me. It does. Yeah. So we've also got to do something really fun, which is we need to take one thing from the remake and put it into the original. Now, easy, easy. So I just went, just put Roach as the car salesman. Oh, it's okay. As, right. Yeah. Just get Roach kicking around in selling cars in the 60s. Yeah, you see, we didn't really talk about that scene. But again, that was one in the early, the original. I really like that scene, the way that, the again, the back and forth between her and him saying, you know, first customer of the day is always trouble, you know, but the way that she's so eager to get out of there that she bites his arm off at the first deal and he's taken aback at like, no one ever takes the first offer. There's definitely something wrong with this chick. Again, it was just a really good way of like ramping up the tension. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry, I liked The Car Salesman in the 1960 film. And I'm vetoing your edition of James the Gross. Okay. You might agree with mine. 
I would take James Remar from the remake ah! and put him as the cop. Yes. Ooh, that was yes. mine. Stole no, mine. it's mine. I was convinced Neil was going to steal that one, and you stole it. Uh, in that case, I will take Viggo Mortensen to pre- to replace John Gavin. Really? Yeah, I really? love Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, and he no, was no, good no. in. Was, so do I. But he was good in the first scene in okay. the in the bedroom. I thought anyway. <laughs> he performed well right. in the bedroom. All right. So we move on to our review scores. Um, so Ben, uh, you're normally the guy who uh, reminds our listeners of what our review scores are and why. Um, so do you want to give everyone a quick reminder, if you remember? Yeah, well, I always try and wing this bit, don't I? And sometimes I try and be clever. I'm not going to try and be clever. If you've taken a film and you've not improved on it in any way, quite the opposite, you've created something pointless that shouldn't have been remade, and we unmake you. Sorry. If, you know... You took a shot. You took your shot. You made some good moves here, but it wasn't a complete success. Or it was about as good as the original. Then it's an agree make. And if you've taken something and you've actually improved on it, you've done something really special, and you've carved your way into people's hearts in a way that the original did not, then it's re-amazing. Now, given Catherine's opening gambit, that this is the worst film that we've ever covered... <laughs> I wonder if enough has happened since then for her to maybe not go on make. I don't know. Probably not. I I don't think it's an agree make, Ben. I don't think it is. Okay. It, no, it's got to be an unmake for okay. me. Okay. So as a rating the film, I would rate the film lower than probably what the podcast rating I'll give it. So I'm going to say an agree make with the context of I'm glad it exists so nobody tries it again. Exactly no, the same. No, this isn't going to be an agree make. This is this can't go down as an agree make. In in the <laughs> well, before you before you ratify that rating, Neil, just bear in mind that Gus Van Sant has said that he actually might remake Sonico again. Oh, Ben, don't do it. Well, the film, the, well, the film is not great, and I think that's clear. But I think what I'm trying to say is that it was an experiment, and you know, I do experiments in work. You know, we have to do user experience experiments and things and did science at university and and the whole idea of experiments is that you're going to fail from it is what you learn from them and then you develop it and change it blah 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 and i think what we've learned i think you said it ben was that if you're going to remake it in this manner don't do it shot for shot or, or you know add something different but i think in the context of being an experiment it's an agree make and i'm sorry catherine I, 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 the only way i can justify it is this as I was, I've got a friend who's an actor, right? And we quite often talk about those intangible moments in acting that are transformative. Someone does something so impressive or, or so complex that we, you know, we we analyze it and talk about it. And I was thinking about him as I was watching this film. And funnily enough, he rang me just after the shower scene. So I paused it and I told him exactly what I was watching. I said, I'm sure you've never seen this film, but I would be really interested in getting your opinion of it because. As much as it's not a success as a piece of drama, I am fascinated by what the filmmaker has done here. So for that reason, it is an agree make for me. I do think it has artistic merit, even if that is not as necessarily a piece of entertainment. Agree make. Sorry, Catherine. It's not the worst film we've done. It's not it's Flatliners. Best. It is the worst film we've done. Oh. 
It's objectively oh, I, not the worst film we've done. It's objectively the worst film we've done. Well, how can you say that? It's taken from a script for an absolute classic and barely changed it. <laughs> well, sorry, yeah. that's the problem. You know, we live in a democracy. This is this is Brexit all over again. The wrong people won. <laughs> <laughs> so that is us all psychoed out. I think. Um, I think we touched on earlier that you know it was one that we think we wanted to. Well, discussed and debated covering it. I'm really glad we have. I think it's been an interesting uh, comparison to make. Oh, Sorry, just before we move on, I want to sort of address this, but also bring up something else. The fact that me and Neil have, have called this an agree make, that doesn't mean that it's a recommendation. I would not recommend this to most people to see unless they are really interested in filmmaking. What I would recommend, strangely enough, is Psycho 2, because you wouldn't think that a film like Psycho needs a sequel. And Psycho 2, in my opinion, should be discussed as one of the great sequels. It is absolutely fantastic. And it picks up 25 years after the first film. Norman has just come out of psychiatric care and has to readjust to the 1980s. Genuinely such a good film. And I would say Psycho 3 and Psycho 4, they represent the law of diminishing returns. But they're actually all enjoyable in their own way. Psycho 3 is much more of a straightforward slasher movie. Anthony Perkins actually directed it. And Psycho 4 goes back to when he was a teenage boy growing up and he is actually sexually attracted to his mother. And that's where his his issues came from. So there's some interesting stuff in there as well. But Psycho 2, I really, really thoroughly recommend. And if you want to borrow it, I'd be more than happy to lend it to you. Catherine, you just look depressed. <laughs> I can no longer recommend this podcast after <laughs> we've just class this and agree make well i'm very excited about this next episode because ben and i have discussed these films quite a bit and i don't want to get too much into what our views are but the second film of season three or second films of series three will be tarkovsky's solaris a russian director from 1972 and the steven soderbergh remake uh, solaris uh, starring george clooney um, as I touched on, I've seen both of them, and uh, I think I saw both of them, actually, only in the last couple of years. So um, I saw the Russian original first, and I saw the remake second. I'm not going to say any more than that at this stage. Catherine, have you seen either of them? Uh, no, I don't even know what they're about. Okay, well, we'll try and uh, not look into it, yeah. I suggest. Yeah, um, totally. have a good yeah. time. Going blind. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I actually saw the Soderbergh one first because I started watching the Tarkovsky one in the late 90s and I was really, really bored, so I turned it off. So I saw, I saw Soderbergh's one and then I went back and rewatched Tarkovsky's one. And that's all I'll say for now. Yeah, you'll be able to find both of these films are available digitally. You can rent them from Amazon, Apple, YouTube, the usual sort of places you can find them. Uh, there's also a nice Criterion Blu-ray uh, of the uh, of the original uh, Solaris, the remake, also available digitally as well for rental or buy. It's not been released in the UK, at least, I don't think, on Blu-ray. No, I've got an old but, DVD of it. Have to yeah, it so it might be DVDs all around or digital uh, rentals. But again, head to justwatch.com to find out where you can uh, find the best price available in your region or area. Ben, do you want to tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us if they want to discuss Psycho? Sure. If you're on Facebook, you can look us up, I imagine, by searching The Good, The Bad and The Remake, and you'll see us. We are the podcast. 
We are, I say we, Neil is on Twitter, at GoodBadRemake, doing a whole lot of free promotion for Snips Video Rental Store. And if you want to send us some thoughts, some suggestions, some feedback, if you think Catherine is right and me and Neil are wrong, and we should all burn in hell for as a result, then email us, GoodBadRemake at gmail.com. Excellent. So... Thank you for listening, and hopefully you've watched both Psychos. You really should check out the Solarises, and that episode will drop mm-hmm. next week. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And join us next week for episode 27, Solaris. I wonder so, I wonder how they got that sound effect. Like I wonder what it actually was. I think it was a hot dog dipped in butter. Okay. I have to try it and see if it actually works. If it does sound realistic. Sorry, I just I just sorry, I'm sorry I interrupted Neil. I I just because clearly it wasn't gonna be It could real. have been. Yeah, it could have been little Vince Vaughn. <laughs> <laughs> Prefer it be a hot dog dipped in butter. Sorry, Neil. I, I've really, I've, I've. Yeah, that was a derailment, yeah, that was, wasn't it? That was a derail and a half. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I was literally about halfway through, <laughs> say, just from nowhere. I'm but sorry. I, I apologize. Right. It, it was, it was rude. I'm sorry. It's okay. So we move on to our review scores. Um, so Ben, uh, you're normally the guy who uh, reminds our listeners.